All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, I want us to take a few moments in prayer as we prepare to go to the, go to the Word that God would guide us and direct us in our study this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. Scripture says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that it is in your light that we see light. And so, Father, it is only through the study of your word and the understanding of your word that our souls are enlightened, as Paul says, the eyes of our soul are enlightened, and we're able to understand reality as it is, as you have created it, and as it is defined by you. Father, we pray that we might be willing to submit ourselves to the challenges of your word, that we might come to understand that we have responsibilities as believers, as disciples, to press on towards spiritual maturity and to glorify you in every area of our life, that we live our lives not for ourselves but for you, and that you have given us such a tremendous spiritual life, and you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and that we must learn what these blessings are, what these provisions are, that we might press on to the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word as we study this morning, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Now, as I've stated in the past, as we've been going through uh, Matthew, that some of these passages are difficult to interpret. Sometimes they're difficult to apply because they're targeted to a specific group of people at a specific time. But often in those passages, and we're studying one of those now in Matthew chapter 10, they reflect principles that are uh, applicable throughout the generations, even though the targeted instruction is only for a specific group at that particular time. And that's true about this situation in Matthew chapter 10, is the Lord Jesus Christ is commissioning his Uh, disciples, the twelve, to a particular ministry. It is a focused ministry, and some of the instructions are unique to this particular ministry, while others have a broader application. So we have to work our way through it a little bit. And also, by way of introduction, we have to understand that, that in many cases, these passages are mishandled by a certain number of commentators and pastors because they they don't come to the text with the foundation of dispensational perspective. Now that doesn't mean that our dispensational theology is is read into the passage, 
But it's that when we come to understand that God has different plans and different purposes for different people at different times, then it helps us to negotiate our way through some of these passages, realizing that they are directed to a specific group of people at a specific time. And, for example, in this passage, because it's given early in the ministry of our Lord before his official rejection by the religious leaders, he is not communicating to his disciples in light of the future coming of the church age, which is still an unrevealed doctrine. It's still a mystery doctrine. So, as it were, the, the, the telescope sort of collapses here as both the uh, instruction for the current time period is given as well as the extension of the age of Israel that comes actually after the present church age. We'll get into that a little more as we go along. Now, as we look at this particular passage, what we see the focus of in verses 16 down through 26 is on these persecutions, a warning of persecution that will come upon the disciples. Jesus is specifically warning the 12 in front of him that they are going to encounter a certain amount of opposition. But then there is an extension of that that is applied to all who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just limited to the 12, but it is it envisions those who come later, subsequent generations. So there is the warning of persecution that is given here and solution to that, which comes in especially uh, verses 24 down through 31 in terms of fear. But let's just review what we've seen a little bit so far, is that after uh, listing the names of the twelve in the first four verses and identifying those to whom Jesus is speaking, he then commissions the twelve to go to the house of Israel and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom with accompanying miracles of validation. Now, that's really important to you remember that as the foundation to this passage because Jesus is sending them on a targeted mission. At this point, he's not sending them to the Gentiles at all. They're prohibited from going to the Gentiles, from going in the way of the Samaritans or the villages of the Samaritans, and they are to go only and exclusively to the house of Israel. So that tells us right away that this is a this message and this mission is related to the age of Israel, the time period in which they live. The age of Israel ends or comes to a pause at the cross. And from what we learn from Daniel chapter 9 in Daniel's, uh, Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks, the time scale for the last period of Israel, that it will cover a period of 490 years from the decree of Artaxerxes II to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls and the fortifications of, of Jerusalem. From that period forward, there would be a period of 490 years. But the last seven years are, are split off from the other 490 years within that vision because there's a pause that's built into the vocabulary of, of, of Daniel chapter 9 that there will be a future ruler who will come and make a covenant with Israel. But 
the timing of that covenant is set apart as somewhat distant from the cutting off of the Messiah. So there's 483 years until the cutting off of the Messiah. And then just the way the narrative reads, there's a pause, there's a break in the action. And then the last seven years come sometime later. So what happens at the cross is God hits the pause button, and then there's going to be something that's inserted between the cross and the final resolution of history in the last seven years related to Israel. And that seven-year period is what we often refer to as the Great Tribulation. So as far as Jesus is communicating to his disciples at this point, they don't understand this pause. They don't understand that there's going to be the insertion of a new dispensation, the church age. They're just thinking in terms of Old Testament prophecy. Remember, the church age was not revealed in the Old Testament. The church is not revealed in the Old Testament. The term church isn't used in the Gospels except once in Matthew, and that's not until Matthew chapter 18. So that hasn't been revealed. Nothing about the church has been revealed yet. So there, this is a targeted mission to go to, the, to go to the Jews only and not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. And the message is related to the kingdom. We've talked about this, that in the Gospels you have the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. That's the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom was their message, that if they would repent, the kingdom of God, this kingdom, this messianic kingdom, that was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament, was about to come. But in order for that to take place, the people needed to be in a right spiritual relationship with God, and they weren't, so they needed to repent. For some, that meant that they needed to become justified. They needed to trust in God for their eternal salvation. For others, they understood salvation. They were what we would call Old Testament saints, but they were not in right relationship with God. They were disobedient or apostate. So both categories are addressed by this command. Those who are unsaved need to become saved. Those who are saved need to be in right relationship with God. So this is the message of the twelve. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the sign of that is the miracles that they perform, which are the miracles that are distinct to the to the Messiah. And they are representatives of the Messiah who is commissioning them to go forth with this message. Now, the second thing that we saw is that Jesus instructs his disciples about the response to their message. There will be two responses to their message. Some people would accept it and some people would would reject it. Now, in context, he's going to explain this and how they should respond to these two different uh, responses to their message. Now, whether you're in the church age or whether you're in the age of the Gentiles prior to Noah, doesn't matter. There, there's still those two responses, right? There's either acceptance of the message, acceptance of the gospel, or rejection of the gospel. But what he says in this context we know is related to the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is this message that the, that the messianic kingdom will come if, the Israel, if Israel will be in right relationship to God. There is a difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the cross. The gospel of the cross is what becomes clear after Jesus is crucified. The message, the good news of the cross, is that Christ died for our sins, and he paid the penalty so that by faith alone we have eternal salvation. The gospel of the kingdom is different. 
The cross has not taken place yet. It is the gospel that the good news of the kingdom is about to come into uh, into reality, and people need to get right with God before that comes into reality. Now, some people are going to accept it, and some people are going to reject it. And in relation to giving that message, Jesus gives some unique uh, unique commands to the disciples. They're, in terms of their provision, they're not to take any money with them. They're not to take any clothes with them, no luggage, no baggage. They're just supposed to be focused on the message. And one aspect of this is that uh, it was to teach them to trust in God's provision and that they were to rely upon God. This was a training exercise that would prepare them for the future. They don't know what the future holds, but the Lord Jesus Christ does, and he's beginning to teach them what it means to conduct their ministry on the basis of trust in God to provide the necessities for their uh, for their ministry. The second thing that, that Jesus is emphasizing here is the response of the people. If they don't have anything with them, it's going to be even more clear what the response of the people will be because if the people respond to the message, they will be supportive of the messenger. And that's the expectation here, that those who accepted the message of the gospel of the kingdom would then take care of and provide for the messenger. Their needs, the needs of the disciples, would be met by those who accepted the message. Now, this same principle is going to apply in the church age. It was true in the earlier parts of the dispensation of, of the law, the dispensation of the patriarchs, and the age of the Gentiles prior to the age of Israel. And that is that those who are serving the Lord with their lives are to be uh, financially supported by the Lord's people. And this is applied throughout the history of mankind, even though it's, it has different dimensions to it depending on the dispensation. In the church age, believers are to financially support those who minister the word of God, pastors and missionaries. The reason for this is so that pastors and missionaries are not distracted by the everyday cares and concerns of the world, where they don't need to worry also about uh, buying a house, taking care of shelter and food and clothing and all of these other things that are a distraction. There are some pastors who choose to work a vocational job at the same time, and they do that for different reasons, sometimes because the congregation can't support them. Some do it for other reasons. But the Bible makes it clear that those who minister the word of God should be supported by the people of God. This is what Paul teaches Timothy about in 1 Timothy 5, 17, and 18. There, uh, Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Now, when he uses the term elder, this is a term presbyteros, and it refers to those who are the spiritual leaders of the congregation. Those who rule well should be counted worthy of double honor. Now, we often use the word honor in terms of respect, but the Greek word teme that is used here is a word that in a number of contexts is related to the financial pay of someone. 
And so that is how it is taken and should be understood here. And to paraphrase it into everyday language, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of a double salary, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. Now, this is a passage that sometimes is abused today. It's a passage that a lot of pastors may not spend time teaching on. A lot of pastors feel awkward talking about uh, financial things, especially as it relates to them. And this is an important aspect of humility. On the other side, you also have pastors who spend a tremendous amount of time uh, trying to fleece the sheep. I've been in congregations where the plates passed four or five times and where money is always mentioned and frequently mentioned. And we don't do that here at West Houston Bible Church. We minimize our discussion about finances. And sometimes that's a little bit of an overreaction to those who spend so much time talking about money. But money's a reality, and money is something that is frequently spoken about in Scripture, our responsibilities in terms of how we handle our finances, especially in relation to uh, the plan of God. And one of the areas in which God is very clear is in this particular passage that the congregation is uh, expected to generously support the, the pastor and those who are who are work for the local church as well as as missionaries they are to be counted worthy of a double salary especially those who labor in the word and doctrine and then paul says gives a rationale for this that comes from the scripture in verse in first timothy 5:18 he says for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Now, the picture here is that in the threshing floor, you have the, the oxen walking around with the, uh, in the mill. And if you muzzle him, then as he's uh, crushing out the grain, he can't eat it because the muzzle would prevent him to participate in the produce that he's working to, to manufacture, to produce. And so uh, the scripture says that you're not to muzzle an ox. He should benefit also from his own work and his own effort. And then the second quote comes from Leviticus 19.13, that it is a valid idea that a laborer should be paid well for his work. The laborer is worthy of his wages. And so the Bible clearly uh, recognizes the principle of, of the fact that if a person works hard, he should be paid well and that he should be provided for. So it is not, uh, the Bible doesn't support some sort of communal living concept or socialist concept or anything of that nature, but it, it emphasizes that a person should be paid well for working hard. So this is the idea behind what Jesus is telling them, that they go out and they they proclaim the gospel, and the people who accept the gospel, accept the message, will accept the messenger and will uh, provide for the messenger. Another point that is emphasized in this section is that the disciples need to learn, as every one of us needs to learn, that no matter what our background, no matter what our training, no matter what our job or career might be, that ultimately that the pay that we receive for what we do, the logistical support that we receive, comes from the Lord. He is the one who provides us with our jobs. He's the one who provides us with everything that we have in life. And we look to him ultimately 
to take care of us. It's real easy to, for people to become self-deceived and to think that, well, I make the kind of money I make because I have worked hard, I have done it all. And the reality is that the Lord can take that away from any one of us in a heartbeat where we don't have the things that we, uh, that we have earned, that we think we deserve because we've worked hard. And there are a lot of people in this world who have advanced degrees in whatever their field might be, who have uh, worked hard, who are very responsible, and who don't have jobs, who are unemployed, who are not paid what they believe they are they should be paid for a variety of different reasons. So we need to be grateful and thankful to God every day that we have the jobs we have, we have the support from him that we have, because every dollar that we make, every dollar that comes in, comes from the Lord. And so this is emphasized in this particular passage. And as we go on, as we look at this passage, as we come to verse 16, we see that Jesus then warns them about the opposition and rejection that they will encounter as they go about the cities and villages in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And as we come to this particular section from verse 16 down through verse 39, we can divide it into three sections. First of all, in verses 16 to 23, uh, Jesus is warning them about future persecutions. He warns them about fu- future persecutions. And then in verse 24, which reads, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor servant above his master. He begins to explain the basis for this persecution and gives three reasons why disciples should not fear persecution. And then in the last section of the chapter, in verses 34 to 39, Jesus warns that the gospel will not automatically bring peace on earth, but it will bring hostility, it will bring war, it will bring rejection, and it will bring much persecution, even to the extent that family members will be divided against each other, and you will have children turning on parents, parents turning on their children, and siblings turning upon one another. Uh, They will betray anyone who is a believer because of the extreme hostility to the gospel. Now, as we get into this section, I want to go back, set it up a little more, look at a couple of other passages in terms of how we interpret this particular section. As I've been reading and studying through this chapter, it, it, it gets very confusing sometimes because a lot of commentators don't understand these fine-tuned distinctions about what Jesus is saying in terms of the surrounding context and the overall structure of his particular ministry. And so I want to look at the uh, once again at the issue on hermeneutics or interpretation. Jesus is describing the hostile reaction that the disciples will encounter But the timing is important. He says it's before the coming of the Son of Man. Look at what he says in verses 22 to 23. He says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now that phrase is a critical phrase for understanding this passage. It's a phrase that has often been misunderstood and misinterpreted uh, throughout the uh, centuries of the church age, and so we have to address that. But it indicates the time frame that this section is talking about. In verse 23 we read, 
When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, when did that happen in the time period of the life of Christ? It didn't. You didn't have this kind of persecution directed towards the disciples during the time of the life of Christ. Now, when we look at Matthew 10, 22, we read this last phrase at the last part, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, when you just read that in the English, the first thing that probably comes to your mind has something to do with eternal salvation. When you endure to the end, you will be saved. But we've studied this many times that the word salvation in the Bible is not always talking about eternal salvation from eternal condemnation. In fact, oftentimes it's not talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about some sort of temporal deliverance from some sort of calamity. In fact, that's the basic sense of the word that is translated saved. It's the Greek word sozo, and it basically means to be delivered from some sort of difficulty or hardship or calamity. Sometimes that, and so understanding the calamity in context helps us to understand what we're being saved from. So in some contexts where people are healed from a disease, the word that is translated healed is actually the word sozo, so that a person is saved from their sickness. So sometimes the word sozo means to be healed. Sometimes the word simply means to be rescued or delivered from some difficult situation, sometimes related to persecution. Other times, for example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's talking about eternal salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in that passage, as well as some others, the word saved refers to what we might call justification. How is a person justified before God if we're all sinners? We're justified like Abraham was in the Old Testament by faith alone in the promise of God. For us, the promise of God is that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah who came in fulfillment of messianic promises in the Old Testament that he would justify many. This is especially seen in Isaiah chapter 53. So here, as Jesus is talking, he says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what's the context? The context is persecution, rejection, hostility. Verse 21, he says, Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Who can? The question that comes from this is who can survive such persecution? And the answer is, given at the end of verse 22, he who endures or survives to the end will be delivered or rescued from that calamity, this situation of the persecution. The same thing is seen in Matthew 24. I want you to hold your place here and turn over just a few places to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are referred to as the Olivet Discourse. This is a, another instruction. What we're reading in Matthew 10 is the second sermon of Jesus in the book of Matthew. The first was the Sermon on the Mount. 
the last or the fourth one is Matthew's uh, is Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives. In answer to the question, what will be the sign of your coming, in verse 3, and of the end of the age? Now, we've studied this quite a bit in the, in the past, but I'm just going to uh, go over this fairly briefly. Jesus is answering this specific question. Jesus isn't answering another question. He's saying the question is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus says, take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, the time frame here in Matthew 24 is not talking about the present church age. It's talking about this situation just prior to the return of Jesus to the earth to set up his kingdom. Okay? So he says that at that time, at that time, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. So this is paralleled in the first part of, of um, the tribulation period as described in Revelation chapters chapter 6 in the seal judgments. There will be these false Christs. It's not the, the fact that we have false messiahs in the church age does not mean that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the signs of his coming. Now, the ne- we all know that the next major event on the prophetic times, uh, timetable is going to be the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is often stated to be a signless event. That means there's no prophecies, no signs, nothing that has to take place before Jesus returns for the church at the, at the rapture. It can happen at any moment. This is called the imminent uh, return of Christ. Nothing, no, there's no condition, no situation, no circumstance, no signs leading or pointing to the rapture. The second coming of Christ when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom is indicated by these particular signs. So Jesus is not talking about what's going to happen before the rapture. He's talking about what will take place in those seven years after the rapture as a sign of his second coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And so he's talking about uh, the intensification of a lot of trends that we already see in the church age, but they're going to be even more so in the tribulation period. The first is the rise of these false teachers and false messiahs. And then in verse 6 he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's not talking about the wars that we see today. The wars and rumors of wars that we see today are not any different from the wars and rumors of wars in the 19th century, the 18th century, or the 15th century, or the 10th century, or the 5th century B.C. There's not, All of these wars are roughly of the same category. But the wars that are going to be signs of Jesus' coming are going to be worldwide cataclysms that are described in Revelation chapter 6 in the seal judgments that are of a totally different order of warfare than we've seen in any of human history up to this particular point. So there will be an increase of wars that are beyond anything man has ever, ever experienced. During those first seal judgments, a quarter of the earth's population will be destroyed. That is far beyond the destruction of the Second World War, far beyond any other destruction and war in human history. 
He goes on to say in verse 7, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. These are all described in the second seal judgment, the third seal judgment, all the way through the sixth seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6. And then Jesus says, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. That term sorrow is a term that describes the tribulation period. So he's saying that all of these signs are just the beginning of that seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation period. Then he says in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. This is the adversity, this is persecution that will come against Christians against believers in the tribulation period. He's not talking specifically about the 12 disciples who were sitting in front of him because they won't be alive when that comes about. So he is talking about, talking to the believers of the tribulation period through them. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That's almost the same kind of language that we have back here in, in verse 22 of Matthew 10. You will be hated by all for my namesake. So Jesus is talking in Matthew 10. He starts talking not just about the opposition that's going to occur to the gospel of the kingdom message in their lifetime, but he's making a, a shift and he's talking about the increase of persecution that takes place at the end of the uh, end of the age of Israel, which is in the time period of the tribulation. And so there's a shift in time. He goes beyond what they are going to directly experience to what will be experienced in the tribulation period. Now, this is important for understanding Matthew chapter 10, because it shows us that Jesus isn't talking about What's going to happen to them in the church age? Now, are things similar to this happening to people in the church age? Of course they are, but that's not his point. And the church age hasn't been announced yet. So he's talking to them in terms of what's going to happen in relation to the gospel of the kingdom. What's the gospel that we're proclaiming now? The gospel of the cross. There's going to be a return to the gospel of the kingdom, which, by the way, will not exclude the cross. But there will be a return to that during the tribulation period because once the tribulation countdown begins and you're in that seven-year seven period, you've got what? Seven years and the kingdom's coming. Six and a half years and the king is coming and the kingdom's coming. Six years and the kingdom is coming and the king is coming. See, it, it's going to be a countdown. They're going to know exactly what's, what's coming. But there will be, so the, the gospel of the kingdom will be a major emphasis in the age of Israel to the Jews with reference to the coming of the Messiah. Now, when we look at verse Matthew 24, 9 and 10, it goes on to say, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now, there have been pockets of this throughout church history, but nothing to the degree that we see in the tribulation period. This is an extreme situation, and this is comparable to what Jesus is saying in Matthew to, to his disciples in Matthew 10. He says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. See, here's the same statement in Matthew 24:13 that we have in, in Matthew 10:22. And what's the time frame? 
The time frame is what's happening at the end of the tribulation period. So this builds a case that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 10 to his disciples has now shifted to a focus on what happens at the end of the age of Israel during the tribulation period. Now, And then he goes on to say in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom, see, this is talking about what's going on in the tribulation period. It's back to the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the end is talking about that second coming of Christ. Now, when we go back to Matthew chapter 10, and we look at Matthew 10, 23, Jesus go, after Jesus said, but he who endures to the end will be saved, he then says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For, I, for assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? I mean, if you just read this at a surface level, it looks like, well, he could be describing general trends until he comes back. But there's more to it than that. But how do we figure that out? We figure it out by looking at this phrase, the coming of the Son of Man. What are the other references to the coming of the Son of Man that Matthew is talking about? Is this talking about... uh, the Son of Man just coming with his church, or just what's this talking about? It's very specific. The idea of the coming of the Son of Man, though, is grounded in an Old Testament passage, one his disciples would have been very familiar with. In Daniel chapter 7, we see the layout of the, of the future kingdoms of man that will oppose the kingdom of God. And it culminates with this monstrous kingdom at the end that is the revived Roman Empire at the, during the tribulation period. And as that period comes to an end, Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And in the context of Daniel 7, it is at this point that the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, gives the kingdom to the Son of Man, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Following the reception of that kingdom, Jesus then comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. So we ha- the, the Old Testament framework is that the coming of the Son of Man is, is to come to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Let's see how Matthew uses the term. In Matthew 16:28, we read, Assuredly, I, Jesus saying, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, it has this, this future tense orientation. Now, in that particular passage, this is fulfilled in a unique way on the um, Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus in all of his glory is revealed to uh, Peter and John, and this is a prefiguring of his coming in his kingdom. In Matthew 24:30, Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When does that occur? That occurs when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom. 
In Matthew 24, 44, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. What he's emphasizing there is for the world at that time, they will not be looking for the coming of the Son of Man. Still talking about the same event that comes at the end of the tribulation. And in Matthew 25, 31, we read, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So the coming of the Son of Man is still seen to be the coming of the second person of the Trinity to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And in Matthew 26:64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The point that I'm making in these verses is that you get one story from Daniel 7 all the way through the Gospels, and that is that the coming of the Son of Man is something that occurs at the end of that seven-year period, at the end of the age of Israel, when Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so understanding how this phrase is used throughout the rest of Scripture teaches tells us that what Jesus is emphasizing here in Matthew chapter 10, when he's talking to these disciples, is that they're going to begin to experience a measure of opposition and persecution at the beginning of their ministry. But this is going to intensify beyond all expectation by the time they come to the end of their, uh, by the time we come to the end of the age just prior to the coming of the Son of Man. So verses 22 and 23 tells us that Jesus is carrying out this description all the way to the last seven years of the tribulation period. So we see that the coming of the Son of Man and the term uh, enduring to the end both locate these, these events near the end of the tribulation period. So Jesus is warning them about the intensity of future persecution, both in terms of their lifetimes in verses uh, 16 through 19, but how this will intensify in verses uh, 20 and and following. So he begins to warn them about the intensity of this for future persecution in verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He uses a very graphic image here that brings to our focus the, the ravenous hostility of wolves toward sheep. When a wolf looks at sheep, he's looking at dinner. He can't wait to eat. And throughout the scripture, we see this imagery used of, of wolves. Uh, the earliest use of wolves in this metaphorical sense occurs in Genesis chapter 49 when the tribe of Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. It's also the, the idea of this con- conflict between wolves and lambs is mentioned in Isaiah 11.6 in talking about the future kingdom that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. But that's not the way things are now. The way things are now is that wolves are the natural predator for sheep, and they're depicted in Scripture again and again as ravenous, violent, and destructive. So wolves are often used as a metaphor for leaders who destroy their people. The people are described as sheep. And by the way, that's not a compliment. Sheep are not ever viewed very positively in Scripture. Sheep are not very bright. Sheep can be a foot away from water, and they won't drink it. They have to be led to the water. 
They have to be led to food. In fact, the existence of sheep is one of the greatest examples against uh, evolution and the idea of the survival of the fittest that we'll ever, ever have because sheep are helpless without human beings. So you can't have the survival of sheep without the presence of human beings as shepherds and as leaders to provide for them. And so this is, uh, this imagery is often used in the scripture. And the idea of leaders as wolves is often found in the scripture. In Ezekiel 22, 27, God is indicting Israel and says, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. In Zephaniah 3, 3, again, we have that same imagery. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. What a graphic image that is for us, that, that, that wolves are designed to destroy and to to just completely decimate a people. So Jesus is giving a warning that that those who are involved in, in carrying out this ministry in Israel are going to be out in an extremely hostile environment. And he is warning his disciples that those who reject his message will not just passively say, well, we'll just let our disagreement stand or we'll agree to disagree and you go on about your business and we'll go on about ours but that this will generate an extremely hostile, negative reaction that will lead to their destruction, possibly. And we can see an application to that in our era. If we lived in an environment historically where we were living in a culture that was predominantly uh, built on Christianity, then there is very little fear of persecution from those who believe in the Bible. This is the way it was in this country for many decades. But now we see more and more the rise of anti-Christianity. And along with that, we also see the rise of anti-Semitism. And these two things are going hand in hand to, to, together today, and it's going to increase in the coming years. It's amazing when you read about what is going on around the world in terms of anti-Semitism, that there are many people who just are not yet aware of how horrible this is in a number of countries. And the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe is, uh, is, is scary right now, especially in France. In fact, the nation from which the largest number of Jews are leaving to go to Israel is France because of the rapid increase in anti-Semitism uh, in France. And a lot of that is generated by the huge Arab population in France but it finds a receptive soil because historically the French have been anti-Semitic. And so this is something that is uh, that we see a trend that's going on today along with the anti-Christian trend. We go to the uh, Middle East, and there's a huge, enormous number of Christians that are being persecuted and put to death in Islamic countries. If you look at, at what's going on in Iraq, a vast number of Christians... Uh, there was a population of about 200,000 Christians in Iraq in the early 1990s, and that population has been reduced now to just a few thousand. Many have been forced to evacuate, to leave, but many others have been have been killed. There were many who were killed, many Coptic Christians were killed in Egypt, and yet we don't see much of a hue and cry among Christians in, in the U.S. about this. I think that's due to a couple of reasons. One is... 
we look at those Christians as maybe not being real Christians. They're Eastern Orthodox Christians. They're very different from Protestant Christians, and they may not actually be born again. They don't really proclaim the gospel like we do, so maybe they're not really Christians. The other thing is is that Americans are historically pretty ignorant and apathetic about what happens in other countries. Historically, we're pretty ignorant about foreign, foreign events, and so that's happening over there. It doesn't really affect us. But what happens when these things are allowed to increase, when anti-Semitism is allowed to increase without any, any sort of re- response, when anti-Christianity is allowed to increase without any response, then eventually it reaches the scope of what took place uh, in, under Nazi Germany in World War II, and there's going to have to be a, a response to it that is going to be, uh, be horrible. And I'm afraid that that's where we're headed because nobody, everybody's turning a blind eye to it. They just want it to go away, but it won't go away. It's going to get worse and worse as the time goes by. So what we see is that those who are opposed to Christians are depicted as these ravenous wolves. And, in fact, Paul used that same imagery in Acts 20.29 when he warned the leaders of the church in Ephesus that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the, the not sparing the flock. And so Jesus says that the way they are to handle this persecution is to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And there's sort of a proverbial nature to this that that serpents, going back to Genesis 3.1, serpents were viewed as being subtle or having some, and then became depicted in literature as the source of wisdom. And doves are not aggressive, and so they're viewed as harmless. On the other side of it, uh, they are often uh, viewed as being not very bright. Often what happens in Christianity is that we get this reversed, and we prove to be as guilty as serpents and as stupid as doves. But that's not the command. So Jesus then goes on to describe the fact that there are going to be two sources of opposition. One is government and religious leaders. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, of course, this happened in Acts. We see this happen in Acts 4 and Acts 5, where Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're whipped before the Sanhedrin. We see examples later on in Acts, where in Acts 24 and 25, Paul is a prisoner, and he witnesses to uh, Festus and to Felix, the governors of, of Judea, and he also witnesses to King Herod Agrippa II. So, yes, that happens in the church age, but that's not the context that's not what Paul is talking, I mean, what Jesus is talking about here. He really is talking about how this is going to increase even more to an extreme level, especially during that last seven-year period in the church age. But there's an, I mean, not in the church age, in the tribulation period. But there's application to the church age, and that is that we are going to face persecution at different times in different places, but not to the universal extent that it will be experienced in the tribulation period. And then the worst case, the most extreme case of persecution is comes from the family. 
And this is ironic in the scriptures because the family is supposed to be the source of security and stability for a nation. And yet here we see that the family will, will break down and brothers and parents and children will betray those in the family who are Christians and cause them to be put to death. We live in a time I think is very strange compared to the previous generations. I run into more and more Christian parents who have done what appears to be a very good job raising their children, and yet they have children who reject every value that they were taught by their parents. They have children that reject the gospel, children that reject Christianity, and plunge themselves, immerse themselves in the pagan culture around them. We haven't seen anything like this in the history of this country. We have a generation, I would say under 40 now, that has completely rejected everything that their parents taught them and everything that that they were uh, reared to stand for. And this bodes evil for this country because as that generation increases that way and the next generation increases that way, then we're going to see a complete collapse of Western civilization. And this is exactly the kind of scenario that leads to the tribulation period. And so then we come to that, to the solution that Jesus has here, and that is that there will be, uh, there, there will be, uh, security only in the Lord. And that is where he, uh, ends, where I'm going to end this morning. We'll come back to look at this next time, is that Jesus promises that we should not be fearful of persecution at all because of our relationship with God, and he will give three basic reasons for why we should not be afraid of persecution. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word. We recognize that there is persecution, there's opposition, there's hostility to the gospel and to Christians today. But we know that this is going to intensify to an extreme degree during the future tribulation. But whether we're talking about persecution in the end times or persecution today, the principles are the same, and that is that you are in charge of history and that just as the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected and persecuted and unjustly crucified, we recognize that those who follow him, those who are disciples, will also very likely be subject to the same kinds of opposition, persecution, and rejection. But we need not fear that because we know that you are the eternal judge of the universe and that eventually all things will be made right at the final judgment. And, Father, we also understand that that you care about us and you watch over us. And if you have numbered the very heads, the hairs of our head, that we know that you will constantly provide for us and take care of us, even in the midst of persecution. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this time to understand that, that Jesus Christ is not just a man, but he was the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is eternal God who became flesh, who became a man, entered into human history, for one purpose, and that was to pay the penalty for our sins that we might have eternal life by simply trusting in him. Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone here who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that they may come to believe in him and trust in him and have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.